My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. When the conversation turns to the golden age of downtown New York, most people immediately flash back to the 80s, when Basquiat, Haring, Scharf, Fab Five, Freddy, Futura, et al. roamed the streets. Well, now there's a new documentary directed by my guest today, Jeremy Elkin, that makes a strong case for extending the Renaissance well into the 90s. All the streets were silent. The convergence of hip-hop and skating, 1987 to 1997, zooms in on the story of how two seemingly disparate communities found common ground wilding out at Mars, the only downtown club in its day brave enough to play rap music. The story is told by the people who were actually there, creating a sound and a look that would go on to shape fashion and music to this day. Listeners to Light Culture will remember me touching on this film in an earlier episode where I spoke with Zoo York's Eli Morgan Gessner, the narrator of the doc that features icons of the era like Kid Capri, Jeff Pang, Stretch Armstrong, Bobito, Keith Huffnagel, Rosario Dawson, DJ Clark, Rodney Smith, Moby, Gino Iannucci, Cool Keith, and many more, including a wealth of archival video with performances by Busta Rhymes and Method Man. So welcome, Jeremy Elkin. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the present and work our way back. First, congratulations for the Tribeca Film Festival and the accolades coming your way, including one by Shepard Ferry, I saw, who, besides being a great artist, is a cultural historian and astute observer of the scene. How does it make you feel to be sitting in the catbird seat, so to speak? Yeah, thank you so much. That was an honor. He's tight with Eli, so it didn't didn't seem like that far of a stretch. But yeah, it's always nice when people recognize, for sure. I'd like to talk about the genesis of this movie, how you came to this point in your life and also in the story, how that came to life for you, having grown up as you did in Montreal and getting started in shooting skate videos of your friends and people in the area, and eventually wound up in New York with this amazing story. In 2012, I asked Eli to do the hand style for a skate video I was doing. And I had known of Eli through my brother in the 90s. Uh, he was always this like legendary figure in the New York scene. And super inspiring, you know, you get the magazines every month and open them up. And the New York ad was always different because it was East Coast. And so um, that always hit home. I didn't see mixtape until years later, but I just love New York. I love everything New York did up until the mid 2000s. I thought it was like, that was it for me. And I knew when I did get around to see mixtape, I always wondered... Let me interrupt you for a second. Tell us what mixtape is. A lot of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Mixtape is a skateboard video that featured the Stretch and Bobbito radio show as the soundtrack. And it was footage that Eli Gessner and R.B. O'Malley compiled. Typically a skate video, you would have 
just a track you'd pull from the internet and you'd layer it in with some footage of your friends or something. But they actually had footage from the studio of Busta and Method Man and a lot of these guys right when their careers were starting. And Eli cut it in together and made each part, each skater from Zoo had a different artist under their skating. And so, yeah, it was a skate video that came out in 1997 on a VHS tape that wound up getting shut down by one of the labels, I believe. They didn't get the rights to anything. They were just using it. But it was this kind of like underground phenomenon in the skate world, for sure. Like, how did this thing happen? When I asked Eli to do the hand styles for a skate video I was doing, which actually featured some of the original New York guys, like Danny Supa, we stayed in touch. And I actually wound up moving on the west side of the city downtown, right near where his apartment is. And we became friendly. And over the years, for the two, three years that followed after that, I was kind of always bugging him to see more of that footage because I knew he definitely had more that wasn't in that video. And I had been hearing from people in the community that there was indeed quite a bit more footage. We were just friends. I wasn't like becoming friends with them to make this movie or anything. It was just sort of natural. And I was the Vanity Fair at the time and I was out of skating and he kind of brought me back in and I got inspired that he had all these archives sitting around his house. And so the deal, the arrangement was that if I cataloged them and digitized them and, and gave them back to him, that I could maybe make something. So when I started down that road, it became really clear within the first like six months that you can't make a mixtape documentary without a budget because all these guys are going to want to get paid. And then the labels have to get involved in the samples and it's just not, it's not feasible. What exists now with the movie is a much bigger history that's further unpacked of that idea of like a mixtape documentary as a 90-minute feature. And when did this element of Mars and hip-hop come into it separately from the skate? Well, we waited to do Eli's interview after we did, I think, maybe 20 or so interviews first, and then we did Eli. And up until that point, you had heard about Yuki Watanabe and Rudolph and people in that scene. You hear about Mars, you hear about Trip. In the back of my mind, I was like, well, there's nothing on the internet, so it means that there's probably nothing that exists. If there's nothing on the internet in 2017, chances are like it doesn't exist because it would have been put on the internet. And it wasn't until we did the interview with Eli that we realized that Yuki, like I just figured Yuki was living in Europe or maybe passed away or lives in Japan or something. Turns out he lives down the street. He actually filmed every single day at Mars. And so we went to interview him and that changed the movie for sure. Because we had Eli's story, which is basically from when Eli goes to Fat Farm, which is after Mars, until the end of the movie, that already existed, basically, like the bones of it existed. Mars was always this little like five minute thing. And now when you see it, it's, it's so much of the birth of all that came from the Mars scene. And the fact that there's that footage is unbelievable that we didn't have to like take it off the internet and just pigeonhole it into the movie from a website you know the, the fact that it was like these tapes that we were holding yeah it was definitely like pretty nuts to go through that stuff what did you feel when you saw it did you think well now there's a different kind of movie because the idea of the convergence i think is key to this movie right so it's not just hip-hop and skating but it's a convergence was it even conceived as as a convergence at this point I think that word came up when we were looking at all that Mars footage because it wasn't as clear looking at Stretch Bobito and the Supreme 
materials and, and all the New York stuff, it didn't hit as hard as when you see a line going around the block at Mars and everyone trying to get in. And it's so culturally diverse. And you just see that blending of neighborhoods coming together at Mars. That's sort of when I think the word convergence popped up. Culturally diverse, you don't really make it a point in your film to highlight that. You're not trying to make a statement about the mixing of the races, we're all one or anything of that nature, but it's obvious at the same time. Was that something that you had in mind, though, while you were making it, that this was uh, an artifact of a period that would be hard to really imagine right now? Yeah, totally. When I grew up skating in Montreal, it wasn't like only white kids skated. Everybody from everywhere, all class levels, everyone skated. Didn't matter. And it was the same thing in New York. I'm sure it was the same in a lot of metropolitan areas. It honestly didn't really cross my mind at all until like way later when people started telling, oh my God, your cast is so diverse. I didn't even, it wasn't, it's just not on my mind. Growing up skating, we never thought of it like that. I think we lived in a bubble and in that bubble, it was super, super mixed, I think. And the whole like Harold thing coming from the project, you know, we looked at- Excuse me, the- tell us who Harold is. Yeah, sorry. Harold Hunter is a skater, grew up in uh, Alphabet City, Avenue D and 12th Street. And he was a pro skater for New York and he was sponsored by Supreme. And he was down with all the, the hip hop kids and the skaters and break dancers, every graffiti kid. And he was kid, black, whatever. right? He was a black kid, yeah. And when you look at like thousands of tapes of someone's life, you know, he's no longer with us. He passed away in the mid 2000s. But when you look at thousands of tapes of someone's life, you get a really good idea of who that person was. Because there's all these moments, the highs, the lows, hanging out at his crib, but also like in the club and also on the street and in in the office, in the New York meetings. I mean, you get to see a really good idea of, of what he was like. And I only met him once in Montreal, actually, but I didn't know him. But knowing his brother and having his brother involved, we tried to stay really true to his story and how everyone remembers him, you know? Yeah, he's a particular case that I've been fascinated. I did meet him and know him very casually, just hanging out by Max Fish and Alleged Gallery, which was another kind of place where everyone hung out from that scene back then. And seeing Harold was a fixture on that block, and I, I was somewhat of a fixture as well. And I was always like fascinated by who is this guy. I didn't really understand the charisma because I wasn't a skater, so I didn't really feel it in the same way that everyone else has, obviously. And even today, his legend continues to grow. There's a foundation for him that's very active in raising money for support of people in the skate scene who have needs. It's kind of a very amazing story at the same time as it's almost a side note, a footnote that's turned into its own story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think even just walking around Lower East Side, you still see pastings of him and graffiti and, you know, the roller doors, there'll be murals of him. I mean, he was so well-loved downtown. I think everyone who... Anyone and anyone who, anyone and everyone who came to New York, I think, during that time met him. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, so, Stretch and Bobito footage, where did that, did you know that that existed already? So, yeah, so, yeah, like I was saying, it was under, uh, it was actually in mixtape, a lot of that stuff. Oh, I see. So, that was already incorporated into the mixtape. 
Not all of it, but a great deal of it, like the Buster Rhymes for sure, the Method Man, Diamond D, a couple of them, but it was still super fun to dig up new stuff. You know, we found, I don't want to spoil it, but there's some other artists in there that we didn't know Eli shot when we were going through it all. So it was wonderful to discover that. So Eli was shooting the show? He would go uptown to, to Columbia. Yeah, where- Eli was really tight with Bobito, who was A&R at Def Jam. And Bobito, and Eli actually also was friends with Stretch because of Mars, because Stretch was a Mars DJ at the end. And Bobito was always at Mars. They connected. And then when, it, when Mars was over, or no, it was way before, sorry. Forgive me. During the Mars time, they wound up doing their show at Columbia University where Stretch got his start. And Eli was like just going up there after like the skate session or the office late night, like 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. and shooting video of everyone. Eli was telling me that like he, for the first bunch of them, he was taping them in the dark because the guys would come in, they don't want the lights on it in the middle of the night, <laughs> rhyming, you know? And when Method Man came and when Busta came, I think when Busta, maybe it was like half at, but definitely when Method Man came, they turn on all the lights in the middle of the show. You don't think about when you're watching it, but a lot of that footage is really hard to see because it's so dark. Like Large Professor freestyles up there and it's like so hard to see because it's so dark. There's literally no light source. Like you can't, you can't even see a silhouette of someone, you know? But when Method Man came, they turn on all the lights. You can really get to see him performing one of his first radio freestyles, you know? Pretty crazy. Yeah, we should also let our audience know that in those days, you couldn't hear hip hop on the radio. So therefore, they started the show that was like midnight to 5 a.m. or something at the Columbia University radio station, which is still a great radio station, KCR, and became a scene where people would come by, hang out, (laughs) rap. I guess the word got out all the way to Staten Island, (laughs) some of the the Wu-Tang Clan people to make the trip. Well, Bobito was working at Def Jam, so he had the in on all the new artists, and he would play them for Eli in his car. And so you'd hear him be like, oh, yeah, these guys are coming out next week, or they're, or, yo, these guys, remember the guys we were listening to in the car? They're going to be on next week, come, next Thursday, come up, you know? So I think it was that conversation a lot of the time. And Eli was just always shooting. He had a camera. Filmed everything, yeah. Crazy, right? When you think well, about it. What's amazing is that I... I filmed almost every single day for like 12 years making my skate videos, but I didn't film the kind of things that Eli was filming. Like I was really precious with my analog tape. It was the skaters throwing down to do the trick, doing the trick, he bails, I cut, right? And then just record, cut, record, cut the whole time. And just to be able to shoot way more, way more skate tricks. But Eli was just letting the camera roll and that's the kind of material that you get when that happens, you know? Most skate filmers, they don't do that because now maybe they do, but back then they didn't because it was way more expensive. Tapes were like, at least in Montreal, they were like 15 bucks. So <laughs> you get 60 minutes, you wanted to stretch as, as long as you can, right? Sure. We talked briefly about the culturally diverse aspect of the film. I'm curious about the girls, the women. Today on TV, you have Betty and you have Skate Kitchen that focused on the girl scene and and in general seems to be a growing component of the sport. Were there any girls there or how was it back then? I can't really speak to New York. I know there were a few in New York. It weren't obviously not like now, 
in Montreal, there was like one or two chicks who skated, but that was sort of it. It's very, very different now. Um, it's definitely changed quite a bit. So we have Rosario in the film, who was neighbors with Harold. She was younger than Harold, but grew up around him. And Beatrice, who's a supreme skater right now, currently, as well as Uli, who founded Max Fish. So it's, it's nice to have some representation of women, but yeah, it was definitely a male-dominated activity, you know? Yeah. Aggressive. It just was super different back then. The attitude, even look at like a magazine or like a thrasher back then, there were no women, you know? It was like one, it was Alyssa Steamer. There was a few girls who skated, but it was definitely not like it is now. Yeah, is that something, can you notice when that changed? Is that just very much a recent story? I don't know. In the last 10 years, for sure, I would say. The late 2000s, I started noticing more girls skating, but it wasn't wasn't like now where it's like so mixed. Like you look at a skate park and it's like, could be 50-50 one day. It's pretty crazy now. It's amazing that everyone skates. Back then, it was, there were a few crews who skated and that was sort of it. Well, it was actually a disappearing at that time as well, as I recall Eli saying that the New York skaters were going to California because just wasn't happening in New York in the same way. I guess there was more money out there for sponsorships and things like that and flattened out after this. Yeah, Keith Huffnagel, Keith left and Keenan left and Gino, a lot of those guys left to pursue their dream and skate for a company out there. Because on the East Coast, it was only New York, really. I mean, there wasn't really another skate company until later. They didn't really have any options, especially after shut was shut down. If you're talking about the 92... 93 area, that's when, when that all happened, yeah. It was a very specific moment in time, though, because then it picked up again like a year or two later. Was Dogtown a reference for you? No, I actually, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, I don't think I've ever seen that documentary. Wow, you're so lucky. <laughs> I mean, it's a great documentary. I think you, you, yeah, I you'd it. like I it, really but at least it. nobody could accuse you of uh, <laughs> taking things from that. It's a very different movie. But I think it does an equally good job of showing a local scene that had global implications and, you know, coming from a small group of friends. Yeah. Now, the West Coast was not comparable. I think it was like two very different things. I mean, the industry was on the West Coast. And in New York, it felt more like there was just a bunch of crews that were skating. I think it was like two very, very different things. Because you couldn't really get seen in a magazine out here in the 90s, it was like a lot harder. The photographer would have to come in from LA, you know? The media was very, very different, I think. Definitely. Your film also touches on the streetwear aspect of what was going on there. Not intentional, I'm sure, in some ways, but it coincided with this. It's not the focus of the film, but I think it's implicit in the story that Zoo York went on to have this fashion brand as well, making all kinds of clothes that people still do today. And of course, today that's even collectible. Supreme as well, starting out back then in a way that nobody could really ever imagine would turn out to be what it is today. Is there a moment for you personally or otherwise where that became a factor or an interest for you? To tell you the truth, I've never really been interested in streetwear. <laughs> I'm not like a streetwear guy. I like wearing friends' brands or a brand that I think is doing something right, but it doesn't really have anything to do with collecting it. I'm, I'm wearing it. I'm not like saving it. 
That probably speaks to the people of that era as well. The ones who, who were wearing the Supreme stuff were all like hanging out at the store. It was a cool thing. Their friends that were working there. So that kind of made sense. But since then, we've seen this amazing industry grow up around it and skateboarding is going into the Olympics this year. Yeah. Also like a huge development. Do you have any thoughts on the commercialization of all of this? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. When I grew up skating, it didn't seem, even though it might have been the case a little bit for some people, it didn't appear as though people were getting into skateboarding to make money. And I feel like now it's much more of a split. Obviously, if they're good at something, they're going to want to pursue it, get better and better, get a sponsor, like an energy drink sponsor or a Nike involved. That's cool. I don't know. It's not my thing. I'd rather be involved in skateboarding because you love skateboarding and you like the people and the community. There's a big like graphic design element to me there. And there's a architecture element with skating, finding a new spot. Like that's what's interesting about skateboarding to me. The corporate end is not very appealing. So, I mean, people do it. It's in the Olympics. It's all good. It's just not why I picked up a skateboard. The graphic design element you mentioned and, and in your film has a very specific graphic design with typography that you use an oversized way to identify the speakers that I, I don't think I've quite seen before. Was oh, that well, part of? Yeah, that was a fun one. Um, Jesse Reed, who's the founder of Order Design Co. and Greenpoint, I brought him on because I knew that he had a relationship with Michael Beirut, who used to work with Massimo Vignelli, and we licensed the, the subway typeface the DOT, I hate the word iconic, but you know, subway entrance typography to create like a character for each person rather than just talking head. It's kind of nice to see big, beautiful typography accompanying a scene. I mean, everything was obviously super thought out, but the locations were really important. The type positioning, that was like a, a really huge part of the thought process that went into the production was getting that right. I know you mentioned working at Vanity Fair. Was that an influence as well? Totally. Yeah. When I was there, my office was basically in the design department. It was like just outside of it when we moved to World Trade Center from Times Square. And the office next to me was Chris Dixon, who's like legendary typographic designer. And down the hall was Dana Brown, who produced the movie, actually. But Chris was like a huge influence on me. We get, you just nerd out every day about different type treatments. And I feel like I cared more about the typography back then than I did the actual content. <laughs> I just got way more involved. I just loved his team. And I loved how careful and, and they were just very like consider They considered like every type choice in a way that I hadn't seen before, having worked at other companies. And I was able to sort of bring what the magazine was doing into video and got to hire a motion designer and, and figure out what we wanted to do for each series and each lower third and just logo treatments. Yeah, it definitely came from there. My brother's actually a graphic designer. So definitely my whole life I've been thinking about typography. The movie is just an extension of all that, I would say. But you went there originally to work or to start the video department. They didn't really have one at the time, right? Yeah, that was a funny time. I still don't know how I got hired. If I wasn't hired for that job, my movie probably wouldn't exist. <laughs> but uh, that job was definitely a turning point. Uh, it was in 2013 at the end of the year. I just applied online. I didn't realize everyone who worked there is like a, it's like a cult and they didn't really let anyone in and they didn't really like post postings online or anything for jobs like that. 
But I just responded to an ad, one of those like job listings because I was broke for making escape videos. And Dana told me once that they interviewed like, they only interviewed me, but they had like, I think 300 submissions within like two, three days for that open position. Apparently I was the only one who could like produce, direct, shoot, edit, do the whole thing. And Dana was like, let's try out the skater. Like, let, let's see if he can hang with us, you know? I know, it's so true and, and so typical of the magazine industry at that time because as more and more of the internet and digital became important, they started adding these compartments that they didn't really even think about before, but they never really committed to it in a way that you would today if you wanted to start something like that. You would need 10 or just, 12 people, right? Oh it's crazy that it was almost 10 years ago. I mean, 2013 feels like yesterday, but it was like a while, you know, it, things have changed a lot since then. Back when I started, we had all these amazing photographers like Demar Chalier and Annie Leibovitz and Testino, and they would have either like a friend of theirs or a cousin, or they would sometimes hire a crew who would go on set with them and shoot behind the scenes like that's it with like a handy cam or whatever. And the hard drive, like the transfer, I don't even know if it was the full resolution, but the transfer would wind up on like a f print photo editor's desk and they'd be like calling tech support. Like, <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> Dana kind of was sick of having dealt with that. He was dealing with it because he was working with Grade and Carter on a lot of producing movies, helping write and pitching ideas and all that. And he was just used to dealing with video or film before he's friends with a lot of like Hollywood types. I think he was just used to it. So Graydon was like, figure it out. And we were getting pressure from Condé Nast Entertainment, which is like the corporate arm to do something more. And so I think, yeah, I was hired as like a Band-Aid probably to yeah, fix it. Exactly. But then like when I started, I don't think they, they thought, I, I think that they had, or I don't know what Dana was thinking, but my gut was telling me that they were thinking I was just going to work nine to five and go home and that's it. But anything I do, I have to do it. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to like sleep there until it's right. So I was like, you know, first one in, last one out for like the first year, basically. Um, and I think they noticed that. And then the second year they gave me more budget and it was able to hire a team and expand it. But it was definitely a brand new concept. I think I was the first video person at Condé Nast who wasn't at the corporate. I was within the publication, you know. But yeah, shout out to Dana for hiring me. For and, sure. and you would do celebrity kind of little pieces and things like that? Yeah, it was all over the place. When it started, like I was saying, like it's like Annie Leibovitz's sister, Barbara, was amazing, who would like go on set with her in like Scotland or something. And they would send a drive with like beautifully shot footage, but it's just behind the scenes footage. Or if you're lucky, it's an interview, but there's no concept or thought process or documentary. It's just like, I'm going to shoot some footage and hopefully get paid by corporations. There was no one who was putting it together. So the idea that Dana and I came up with was like, how do we, we were doing covers like four to six months in advance. So it's like, how do we better take advantage of that moment when we have the celebrity for a day or three days, depending on the shoot with one of these big name photographers, if we get 20 minutes with them, what do we do? And that's how we wound up making a lot of those videos that went viral. It was totally unintentional, but it was like, most of those celebrities had never done that before. So you had like Channing Tatum dancing, or we had a documentary with Caitlyn Jenner. Just went on and on and on. Like every cover was a different subject. It was a lot of fun to try and figure out like editorially what to do with them, you know? Yeah, it sounds like a nice situation that worked out for you. Back to the film, Kids. 
is a parallel movie to this. I think it would be a make a great double feature. And that happened towards the end of it's nine, what is it, 98, you said, where you, where you shut it off? Uh, you gave it until 98. What year did that come out? 96 or something? Kids came out in 95. 95. My film's 87 and 97, yeah. So that seemed to be like a turning point in a way for those people who had been on the scene, the skaters and their friends, and suddenly the limelight, the movie turned out to be a huge success. Everybody was talking about him. How did that impact your story? Yeah, I think it was the moment when I think Harold, Harold for sure, was trying so hard. Is Supreme going to work out? Like, am I even getting paid enough by like a New Yorker? I don't even know if he's getting paid by Supreme, but some of these brands that were like really small independent labels, you know, it's hard to make a ton of money that way in skating. Like, it's just the money's just not there. And then I think he got a taste of. Hollywood with kids or seeing the success of the film and the reach it had apparently like he would like walk down the street and people would just yell at him like, yeah, you know? So I think that probably hit him pretty hard at that time. I think it was like a big impact on a lot of those dudes, obviously BC, Jeff Pang. I mean, they were all probably getting recognized left and right for being in that movie. Um, Leo, obviously. And it's a huge moment in our story because it's when Harold like gets into the clubs not Mars, but like a, a club that you normally wouldn't be able to get into as like a sweaty skater just having tried a trick for two hours. Uh, it's like, <laughs> I think previously it was probably really tough, but all of a sudden he was like recognizable because he was playing at like Lowe's or something, you know? He's probably so, getting think, free yeah. drinks and perks and girls and whatever. Yeah. So I think that was a, yeah, that was a huge moment for all of them. I think for Chloe, Rosario, I mean, Yeah. Totally. Did you try to get some people that you wish you had in the film that weren't able to uh, participate? Yeah, we wish we could have gotten Chloe. She was, uh, we spoke to her. She was awesome, but didn't work out. It was like wrong timing at the time. It was like two years ago. And I'm trying to give us someone else. It would have been great to have Busta. We tried for years to get Busta. Very tough. Nas, he like loved it. He was cool with it, but he was like, I'm not a skater. Jay-Z watched the movie and loved it, but yeah, we didn't do an interview with him. You know, it's sort of, at the end of the day, like, we're just a small independent film. We're not trying to, like, chase Jay-Z or something. You know? No, I mean, you did amazing getting the people that you did. Oh, well, thank you. It was super fun. It's a hunt to get some of those guys, for sure. That's always, yeah, and there's always more, I'm sure, on your list. And are there any good making of stories? Because in every documentary, there's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... I know you had to change the whole music concept, right? Because of all of the, the money that would be involved in life. So you've seen, you've seen both versions now, yeah. right? You saw previously and then you saw the final. Yeah. Yeah. So before COVID, or I guess it's, it's, yeah, two questions, but before COVID, I'll just answer this one first. We were hoping that an investor would come in and clear some of that music so we could have the De La Souls and the tribes in there. And it was a blessing that Laurie Professor came on board to do the score. But up until that point, it was definitely like a scary moment being in a festival and not having clearances was like, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it was a little dangerous. We were just really like hoping some shark would come in and fund it. And it didn't happen. So we just sat tight for a couple months and we put something together with large professor and tried to figure out it was the early days of like rebuilding the whole soundscape of the movie with large pro and, and, and working the sound design and developing that all that was really like eight or nine months. But up until then, 
we couldn't afford to make that movie. <laughs> the first one. We're super fortunate that it came out the way it did. Yeah, I think in retrospect, things always seem to work out for the best. And yeah. in my mind, it would have, you know, been too much of a soundtrack, a familiar soundtrack where the music kind of t- takes over uh, right. the, the film. Sometimes you don't right. really want that to happen. Right. And then you asked about any stories. Every interview has a story, but um, I have one that you might find amusing. We were shooting, uh, so I, big shout out to Kyber Jones, who was on like basically every shoot we did, period. He was like my assistant, but also did sound and helped a lot with lighting. It was pretty much the two of us on every shoot. And we were up in the Bronx shooting JR for the Brooklyn Museum film that we did. This was three or four years ago. It was right when we were starting, it must have been the spring of 2018, because it was like, we'd only done probably 10 or 15 interviews. And we're in the Bronx and we're shooting on the street in the South Bronx with him. And the JR shoot, it was this 60 foot FedEx truck with his pasted over with his you know iconic eye on it. We were just taking people off the street and putting them into the truck to get their portrait taken by JR. We were doing a, a documentary about that. And one of the people who came in, he called himself the Bronx Blesser. He came in and was super, super cool and sort of wound up hanging out at the truck. And we interviewed him after. And he said, well, you know, we're right next to the Museum of Hip Hop, whatever. I didn't mention anything about my movie, like nothing. And at the end, he asked me, like, what else do you guys do? What are you into? Whatever. I was like, well, actually, we're working on another film, this like skate hip hop film. I don't know what it's going to be, but we're working on it. And he's like, well, how can I help? Or like, what can I do, you know? And he's just like, you know, old dude with a cane kind of vibe with like the leather. Also, I should say, it's like pouring rain, (laughs) like sheets of rain. He's just like wooden cane with gold rings and the just super sick. And he loved JR and he just wanted to like help, you know? And uh, he's like, well, you know, I could get you someone. Someone owes me a favor. This woman owes me a favor. She's Kid Capri's manager. Oh, really? And uh, he's like, so she like gets her on the phone. We were in Kid Capri's basement the next day. Oh, oh great. Uh, but that was like totally random. <laughs> yeah, and I love that part, though. He's so great on camera. And his- oh, he's amazing. Yeah, that was like 11 p.m. in New Jersey in his basement, you know? That was awesome. That was epic to walk in. That was like really one of those moments where it's like, maybe we'll be able to get so-and-so or maybe now that we have him, we'll get the next person or, you know, that was a huge moment for sure. And the stuff that you use from the original mixtape, the Busta clip and Method Man, for example, you were allowed to use those? How did that work? We got out? permission. Yeah. Got like permission. we got written permission for Method Man and Busta through his, one of his managers, verbal okays, Eric Sermon from EPMD, Showed the film to Busta, apparently, through a mutual friend. This was like really early. This is like four years ago, though, uh-huh. but it happened at a certain point. Getting those sign-offs were definitely like a way to to keep pushing forward, you know? Like Willow Perone works with Jay-Z. He got Jay's approval. We're able to get those, those, those big-name sign-offs uh, through mutual friends. Yeah, that's really cool. You could have that and use that. My God. When Willow went over to Jay-Z's, I was like, he's definitely going to like have us mute it or like cut it way down. He was just like, respect, you know, like nothing, no comment, like great. So it's like the best thing ever. You know, when I got that call, it was like, because I was already ready to shorten it way, way down in my mind. Like it's going to have to get cut like to three seconds or something mute. 
And then he was just like, yeah, use it. But I think he's a historian himself. Jay-Z is amazing. Like, I'm sure he just saw, he, he recognized his sound back then and maybe sort of helps tell the evolution of sort of uh, where he came from. And he had never seen the footage. It might be the first ever club footage of Jay-Z, period. That's you know? what I'm thinking. I mean, I've never yeah. seen anything, but... So what's next? I'm sure everybody wants to know. That's the question. Nothing concrete yet. I'm not much of a proclaimer. I don't like talking about projects that are floating around. Until it lands, it's hard to... I don't, I don't want to, you know, come out with some big statement. There's some things in the works. But you but have some ideas. Do you think you would still want to work in this frame? Are you ta- thinking about a documentary or a feature film or just something else? Uh, yeah, definitely a documentary. I mean, I need a little break for sure from the last like four or five years. Definitely a documentary, definitely some shorts. I mean, it's ongoing. We do a lot of commercial work and editorial work with my production label. So, What's the production company called? Elkin Editions. It's like fashion, art, music, skate, etc. It's ongoing. I mean, there's always 10 projects in the works at all times. Right. And you're open to suggestions still? Totally, yeah. <laughs> Good. Of course. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the work you put in to do this and being able to tell the story. Usually we look back to the 80s as this golden age and... Obviously, the 90s were really amazing as well. And there's even more to be said about the 90s. I've been kind of thinking about it myself on some projects with regard, especially the cannabis, for example. I think the 90s was an amazing period in New York with a lot of underground stuff that's coming to the surface only today as we get move into the legal space. So, yeah, it's great to be able to tell another New York story. I love New York as well. So thank you very much, Jeremy Elkin. Thank you. Shout out uh, Eli Gessner and Large Professor and New York. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening.